So, hi folks, welcome to the first of three Edinburgh Tradfest 2022 podcasts. You probably know all the last ones. We did nine last year. You probably know them all off by heart. So, here we go again. I'm Douglas Robertson, and Jane Ann Purdy will tell you what's in it. Thanks, Douglas. We'll be talking to Phil Alexander about our special commission, Come All Ye, a show that features a specially put together band of international musicians who now call Scotland their home. And we'll hear from one of their number telling the story of how they settled in Scotland. That's fiddler Yanni Lang, who'll pop up at the end of the show. And we're also featuring Pedro Cameron, one of the founders of Boa Frost, who tells us all about the inspiration for his song Rosanna. But before all that, this. Kareen Power and Dave Milligan are two of our favourite musicians. Each has a way with music that is all their own, so we were delighted to hear that they were bringing their very distinct voices together for a new album project. Released to great acclaim last year, Still As You're Sleeping is a mixture of old and new songs crafted by the duo through the various lockdowns and bears the mark of that unusual and uncertain time. As soon as we heard them perform together at last year's International Festival, we knew we had to try and book them for Edinburgh Tradfest. They will appear at the festival on Thursday the 5th of May and we are also very happy to welcome them to the podcast. Hi, Corinne. Hello. Hi, Dave. Nice to see you. Hiya. Hello, both. We're uh, all still in our home studio, so some lockdown things endure. And uh, Corinne, I have to ask you a little bit about a little skeleton at the back of the room there <laughs> that I yeah. saw on Instagram yesterday. I've got a wee skeleton in my closet. Um, <laughs> Which was actually a present, some people will be unsurprised to hear, from Inga Thompson. Ah. Um, when when I moved my office um, endeavours into this wee room, she she said she had the very thing. So clearly that's the wee fella at the back there. Wow. Yeah. He's just, yeah he just got bored. He just got bored and kind of died on the job. There. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the sound engineer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to wind back a wee bit, first of all, and the first question is for you, Corinne. Um the genesis of this album, I think, may have even started before lockdown when you heard an improvised piece at one of Dave's concerts. Um, I'm wondering what what you loved about that particular piece and um, to, even sparing his blushes, Dave's playing in general. Yeah, so back, back at the beginning of 2020, Dave um, was doing a solo recital at Celtic Connections um, in the City Halls and I went to see that and it was beautiful. I mean, I know... I know Dave's playing is beautiful because I've I've been aware of his playing for two decades or so. Um, but yeah, what really struck me, and I actually stopped on the way out and spoke to him. He was at the door on the way out after the concert because all through it, I had pictures. Um, it was like a little movie screen, basically, running through my head, through the gig. And I stopped and said, oh my goodness, I, I've just had, like I've conjured the backstory <laughs> to some of these pieces. I can see them running. Um, yeah, and it just, it made me think, that they were very cinematic and had a real kind of narrative quality to them. So maybe there was a little bit of a spark there that found a home when things shut down. And one of them became a song on the album, right? It did, yeah. So, I mean, Dave will maybe be able to say a bit more about that, but one of the pieces on the album is called Sicker Point, and it's kind of the outlier track on the album, I guess. It's a kind of combination of... um, like kind of part composed, part improvised um, piece from from Dave, 
um, and some spoken word and song from me. It's it's inspired by Sicker Point along on the coast in the borders, mm. yeah. which is kind of a really important place in the history of geology. Um, but yeah, that that piece came together in yeah, I guess in the studio almost after the studio. It was Dave played the entire piece instrumentally, and then I crafted something in the space that he'd left. And there's one thing to mention is that actually. You wouldn't get any sense of it now because I'm taking up all the space right now. Um, but um, one of the things that I love most about Dave's playing is the sense of space. Um, I wanted to ask Dave, um, you're probably best known as a jazz pianist who very often plays super complex improvisations. Um, how is it to play relatively simple melodies like uh, on the, the sort of Burns album or, the, or the, the, the duet album, I should say? Does that bring its own challenges? Uh, yes, and yes, actually. <laughs> um, uh, the the question about how is it to play simply? Um, it's it's not. I don't really kind of see it as a a, a change in in uh, approach or direction or anything like that. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I think as a a. a player and an improviser over the years I've I've slowly come to realize that uh, I think I find beauty in simplicity um, more than anything else and one of the things that really uh, spoke to me about this project and the process of recording uh, was just finding uh, those kind of areas of of beauty and uh, an ability to kind of connect uh, with a, a, an image or a, a story um, just through that sense of space. Uh, and it's really, you know, for all the material that Kareen brought to the table, that's kind of what it kept demanding for me. Um, so that's, I think that's really why, you know, the, the sound of the album ended up the way it did because it, it sort of couldn't have been anything else, I don't think. No, I mean, I, I mean, I know there's people. You know, some of the top jazzers will actually are very happy to play just a beautiful melody. Brad Meldow will choo choose something and play it actually, you know, quite straight, really, or or Pat Metheny or whatever. I think there's 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 something in that. I don't think it always has to be complicated, does it? it doesn't have to be intense and complex. Of course not. No, yeah. no. of course. For me, it's about it's it. It's a it's a funny thing that the whole discussion around what constitutes complexity or simplicity is really interesting because it's often a thing that's used to, to dismiss folk music mm. as kind of like a simple sort of one-dimensional slightly banal kind of musical art form um so to me it's not about complexity or simplicity so much as about what a thing needs <laughs> like mm. what what's required here to make this piece of music feel alive and and feel emotionally resonant and actually playing less can often and singing less equally you know I, I I don't ornament very much in my singing my singing is quite direct and quite straightforward it's a bit like talking um but to me that's that's just absolutely what the the songs require yeah. um yeah. people with more gymnastic abilities can <laughs> sing sing other stuff <laughs> That maybe partly answers the question I was going to say. Ask you when we saw you at uh, EIF. I was quite surprised to see there were no instruments around you. I didn't know, you know, the uh, the, the details of the piece, you know. Um, but there was really Dave on piano, and there was you at a vocal mic. And even in the Scottish Songbook, 
uh, concert that we saw you previously at the Usher Hall when you had a full band. You still played guitar and you played melodeon and, and so forth. I'm just wondering how it what, how it is to stand sort of naked of instruments. Really, is it is it uh, is it quite disarming in a way, or is it is it is it a joy just to be able to focus on the voice? Um, it's genuinely a joy, I, I think. Because let's be frank, um, you know, I can pick up a few instruments and make a sound on them, but <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm I'm a competent musician. I'm not a technician, or so. M- whenever I pay, play an instrument, I'm playing it in the context of a band, and it has a very specific and very simple job to do, usually. Um, so, and that is not the case with Dave's playing. <laughs> so, on the, I mean, I guess for me, it was there. Nothing else was required, and actually, it's a total delight. To just get to concentrate on, on singing. I can sing in a different way, and I can maybe have a little bit more. Oh, I can be a wee bit more of a diva, I guess. Like I've got a little. I feel like I've got a wee tiny bit more, like You're authority forward to the or big something. At, uh, That's it. <laughs> oh, there'll be a costume change at the break. I'll just, oh, just wait. I've got a stylist and everything. So. Oh my goodness, um, Dave. I wanted to ask a little bit about the. The choice of the songs. I mean, I know that the Parting Glass was commissioned for uh, Margaret Atwood's Today program. Um, how did you go about choosing the rest of the songs on the album? Uh, well, I'll let Corinne tell you uh, a, a little bit more about the the kind of uh, reasons behind some of the individual song choices. But uh, as a collaborative project, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was. Uh, being the kind of being the one that uh, was having things brought to to me and going, <laughs> how about this? What can we do with this? Um, which is kind of what I love, I think, more than anything about kind of collaborative projects. Um, I, I always find myself uh, feeling a great deal of pressure when it's up to me to go away and find material. Um, so uh, I was very happy that Kareen was uh, already had sort of quite a, a clear idea of of what that kind of pop was and things that uh, you know song choices and and stories that were coming from there. Um, so that that was a, a a very enjoyable part of the process for me. Uh, and I'll let Kareen explain kind of her, maybe her thinking behind some of the the individual song choices. Yeah, I mean, I think the. We had quite a good hit rate with the material that got came together. There was a few things yeah. that didn't make it. Um, so so it's not to say that we, we brought everything and everything is on the album. Um, there were a few things that had already worked, the parting glass we'd done and we that, that had worked beautifully. So there was a zone of kind of traditional song that we knew we could occupy. And then there are songs that are by other writers um, and some of them have slotted very very kind of sympathetically alongside the traditional material so we've got Alistair Roberts's um, Old Men of the Shells and you know Dave injects a, a bit of the Peabroch that has that same name into the arrangement of that um, but yeah there were a few things that, that that weren't quite right we tried a version of um, Leonard Cohen's anthem for example because um, we were in the zone of Canadiana with them um, the McGarrigals and uh, mm. Talk to Me of Mendocino yeah. and um and it didn't work, did it, Dave? No, no. no it, was, it almost did. Almost <laughs> did, but it was. But just, it would have been a different album. It would have been a different album. And actually, what was really interesting was once we had a little pot of three, four, five songs 
it became much, much easier to work out what else was going to work because we already had a kind of soundscape and there were very sympathetic images, you know, around um, shorelines and water and there was a kind of sense of uncertainty maybe about coming and going. There was a lot of songs about leaving um, for one place or another. And I think once they're in, well, for me anyway, once those are in your head, it works a little bit like a juke like a jukebox or a playlist or something like that and other mm-hmm. things begin to stick to that so that is that is that an accurate reflection of how it all sort of happened Dave yeah I'd say so I'd say so and uh, the parting glass thing was then picked up again by Radio 4 wasn't it for the soul music show that you kind of hosted that was, that, was a, that was a beautiful show. It's really, really touching stuff. You know, what a piece of music means to different people. And also just to hear the piece, you know, in quick succession performed by different people, including yourself and Hosier and, and others. I mean, that must have been real fun to work on. It was beautiful. And actually, yeah, it, it was the, I mean, it was our version of the Parting Glass on the Today programme that sparked the producer of that show to make that 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 kind of half hour documentary about the song it's one of my favorite shows on radio 4 is mm-hmm. soul great. music because you know if you've never heard it before every show is inspired by a song and you get this beautiful mixture of kind of geeky documentary about the song and how it was written and what its history is in amongst all these really really moving very personal connections about what the song means to people in their own lives and um, I love that that's my favorite thing about about being a musician is that actually when you make a piece of music, it flies away and you don't have any control over how it lands in someone else's life and what it mm. means for them. It's quite incredible how they managed to find those people around the globe who the song is so significant to them. I mean, that's that's something that, that baffles me, how they, they track those people down, you know, and because uh, it really is, it's, it's astonishing each time I hear that show. Yeah, it's truly, truly global and there's, and there's always like a huge story for some person or some community connected to this song. But I think that, I mean, in a way, we all kind of know that, don't we? Like, and you know, all of us that are involved in music, whether we're making music or, or listening to it or, or promoting it and supporting it, that's kind of what it does, doesn't it? We know that that's, what, that's why it matters to us. Dave, I have another question for you. Um, I wondered if you think it's a fair assessment that I observed the influence on the pandemic on the album, both in the finished product and the way you worked on it. Um, I mean, do you think it would have happened if you without the dreaded COVID? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know, actually. I can't really say, can I? But um, it was just one of those kind of circumstantial things. I mean, the, the, you know, what led us into the studio in the first place um, you could say was, you know, relatively coincidental that that first session that we did in the studio was the result of Corinne being commissioned to um, to contribute a, a song uh, to a project that I was kind of already involved in and, and musical director of. And um, and that but, was a, yeah. dement- that's a that was a dementia project. So in a way, it is COVID related because I think it was we were both involved in this thing called. Um, the Dementia Singing Network, it was a singing pack to kind of go out to care homes and people looking after um, folk with dementia at home as well. Um, and I think an awareness that um, a lot of the opportunities that they had to sing had been cut off because of COVID. 
So I think we were in the studio because there was someone had, you know, the um, Luminate um, had recognised the need for something that we sort of stepped into. And I think weirdly also the parting glass recording for Radio 4, um, originally they had asked me to record that myself in my bedroom, in, in this room here. Uh, <laughs> with the mattress against the, and the skeleton's not so good at and the, the skeleton <laughs> yeah rubbish and I and by that point I was so tired of um recording things in a substandard fashion in my mm -hmm. own house that I basically went back to them and and also really not just tired but aware of how many other people's work was being cut out of the the kind of like cycle of things yeah. as in all the sound engineers were, mm -hmm. were not being asked, the videographers were not being asked yeah. and the kind of musicians that you might collaborate with were all getting cut out. And I basically went back to them and said, uh, I'll do this, but, but only if you'll book a studio and book Dave Milligan. <laughs> and actually I was amazed that they got back and said. In, in diva fashion, you demanded more. I did. I totally <laughs> did. But actually I demanded more on behalf of, on behalf of the song and what it was supposed to be for Margaret Atwood, like it's, and because it was, you know, it was it was about her remembering her husband, that the song was used yeah. at his funeral. And also on behalf of the people that I work with and just an awareness that I, actually it was getting too easy, I think, for the BBC to get cheap content um, yeah. that actually didn't pay people um, their due yeah. for the skills that they've got. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the other things I was kind of thinking of in that, you know, during lockdown, everybody's neighbours became way more important to them. And, you know, in Pathhead, you're very lucky that your neighbours are all amazing music. Well, not all, but, you know, there are a lot of amazing musicians around. So, you know, I was kind of thinking about that, that, I, that maybe a lot of people don't realise that you live pretty close to each other. And so it was that was a nice thing you could interact. I think when people think, sometimes when we talk about Pathhead, it's almost like conjuring up some like masked choral image out of Oliver or something like that. Like it's just <laughs> having a wee song on the way to the baker's. <laughs> and it's not quite like that, is it, Dave? Oh, come on, it is so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we live five minutes away from each other on, on opposite sides of the football park yeah. in the village, you know, and our, our kids have grown up knowing each other. Um, and there are other musicians in the village. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Inga Thompson, but also Martin Green from Lau and... You know, there there is a little hub of of, of um, musicians here, and that is a comfort, I, I think, um, to have pals around and to have folk that are doing similar things. And on a very very practical level, you're sitting in your um, piano room in your house, Dave, and all our rehearsals and arranging took place. I could just like come home for my dinner. Yeah, and you did. Yeah. I did. I would go away for my lunch. It was just like it was like being at school and going home for a packed lunch. You know, going home for your lunch. Yeah. <laughs> Dave's cooking so bad. It's really, yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> uh, that kind of leads me on a little bit because um, I think after the last couple of years, you know, we've noticed that a lot of people are reassessing the, the way that they work and the way that they live their lives. And I think uh, I'm just wondering, you know, how how has it changed the way you look at how you will work in terms of touring and all that, um, you know, because of the pandemic or just, you know, the chance you had to sit down and think about the things you maybe didn't like about being a musician? It's a good question. I mean, I think I, I, I want to say that it has changed the, the way that I think about the way I 
earn my living to to kind of put a, a sort of crass term on it. Um, and I'm I'm sort of aware. I'm probably more aware of the effect that I'm seeing kind of around me um, on you know the, a lot of friends and and colleagues that really rely on live performance you know that what they do is is they gig um and i'm kind of aware that that's um, very impactful uh and it's having a, a really um significant impact on people's personal lives as well that you know there's uh it's i know a lot of musicians who uh live with musicians they're married to or have partners that are also musicians and all of a sudden there's that kind of uh, forced time at home. Um, <clears throat> and that's, you know, played out in, in lots of different ways for lots of different people. And I, I think that the on a personal level, it's uh, it's not been, I, I wouldn't see it as uh, been a hardship uh, for me. I, I've got things that I can do from home, which I always did from home. Um, and I was never really a, a particularly a road rat anyway, where I would be out kind of constantly touring. Um, but I think the thing that's really struck me more than anything is just kind of seeing the impact on the on my own community and the wider community of creative people in general. Um, and you know, we're still seeing it where there are people that you know they don't teach and they don't compose and you know they they just rely on going out and doing gigs uh and it's it's really tough um so yeah i mean there's you can't get away from the the it's made a massive difference um and i i'm sort of feel like i'm a bit more of a spectator than you know than a victim of it if you like but um but yeah i mean mean, it's it's huge isn't it yeah i mean i would i would echo a lot of that around the impact of um, just the precarity of live performance. Yeah, a number of pals really, you know, been horrendously unlucky um, and continue to be unlucky. It's not gone away either. You know, there's still yeah. people losing work right now and two years is a long time um, to be kind of like trying to ride this out and be stoic about it all. And I think it's not just the financial impact, it's the mental health impact as well. It's been really quite profound People have had to change the way that they do things. And I think not just for live performers, but for people working with communities. So anybody who's involved in education or or community-based participative kind of music making, that's just been really hugely difficult for all those people. And from my point of view, the, the biggest impact has been on, I mean, I think prior to COVID, yeah, I mean, 60% of my income came from live performance and that's taken a change but perhaps the greatest impact has been on my ability to hire other people. A lot of the money that I earned from live performances and projects like the Scottish Songbook, for example, was paying, you know, teams of people, musicians, engineers, videographers, recording engineers. You know, it's the impact that spins out from those changes as as well. Um, So I feel awful that I've barely been able to create any work for other people and that feels like a quite a profound change and yeah the precarity of you know like even this week you know I have two gigs next week with the chamber orchestra but they account for they're huge they're like the (laughs) biggest gigs I've ever done pretty much and 
Um, and if they go down for COVID, as as they might, like like literally, I'm worried about that right now because of what's happening in my community. Yeah. Then then that is like that's like six to eight weeks worth of income gone. Um, and just an awareness that nobody in the music scene has any um, insurance against that. None of us are getting sick pay. So yeah, there's a vulnerability around the whole system of it. I think. Yeah, it's uh, far from gone. We had five gigs at Riddles Court at the moment, and it's looking well. One has been already uh, NOS called off because one of them tested positive, and we now have uh, another one that's hanging in the balance. And I'll not say any more about that at the moment. <laughs> yeah, well, but it will be resolved by the time this goes out, of course. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's still it's still not gone. Although a lot of people seem to think it has. You know, uh, I was at a gig last night in Glasgow. There was hardly a mask to be seen. Um, at the yeah. SW3. Oh, um, my final um, question really was um, how you came up with the name for the act. <laughs> Good one, Douglas. Oh, do you know, we totally stressed out about whether there was like an ampersand or was it like a. <laughs> it's funny when it comes to the visual design of the album, we did it, that became like a thing. And. Okay. With, yeah. not with no no not with and definitely and is that the word and or is that the symbol or um yeah yeah but you had a really pedantic designer for the album cover as well right <laughs> yeah it was a nightmare <laughs> we're also in in direct competition with um kareen Power and david milligan um, <laughs> we're quite a successful duo <laughs> right yes, yes. so that wow. causes problems too so do you know what's fu- it's funny that though? Because actually, I know Dave as David. Like, Dave is David in Pathhead. Nobody, call- well, maybe Tom Bancroft calls you Dave, but nobody else calls you Dave, do they? Uh, yeah, a few people do. Oh, do um, they? Is it just the women that call you David? It might be. Actually. So it's like a kind of like Wuthering Heights thing or something like that. So, <laughs> it's like got like, is it more like formal or something? Yeah, possibly. Wuthering looks, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I started calling Dave, David Dave because he's Dave on the album and that's quite a weird psychic flip. Yeah, we yeah, need to get an abbreviation for Kareen. Yeah, don't start calling me like Rini or something like that. <laughs> not, I'm not having it. <laughs> oh, I like it though. I did just get called Rini. Rini was a nickname when I was like 18, 19. Makes me sound like I'm about 80, so just don't do that. Oh, well, there's nothing like advertising it now anyway. <laughs> Okay, let's let's uh, we've got a final question. It's uh, basically what we're going to hear off the album. Um, I hope you agreed on a track that we're going to play. Who's going to tell us about that? I think we did. We could maybe both say a wee bit about it. I mean, I'll, yeah. I can maybe say what yeah. what what inspired the song, and Dave yeah. can maybe say a little bit about how how we arranged it because it found its happy musical home. So it's yeah. one of my favourite songs of all time. Um, Craigie Hill from Dick Gawkins' Handful of Earth, and um, and I guess it's inspired by my grandfather because when I first heard the song on that album, it was the night before my grandfather was getting buried. And um, his name was Peter Quinn. And he was from Hayhill and Craigie in Ayr. And there was something about hearing the song um, just before his funeral. Um, his father was from Donegal and the song ends with an image in Donegal that I honestly felt like the song had been written as if it was about him you know it's a song about going away it's a song about remembering your childhood 
And those were all things that um, were going on for my grandfather in the last few weeks of his life. He was often confused about what age he was and what was going on. Um, so that I've, I've always wanted to record that song, but it's such a big song um, that I've never found the uh, right place for it. And I'm delighted that actually it's this project that is the happy home for that song. There's a... Um a thing that happened after we'd recorded it, um, there was something about the the little uh, motif that's uh, used as the kind of intro and, and the sort of main recurring line mm-hmm. that comes back on the piano. Um, and I realised that it was a thing that I'd come up with uh, quite a few years ago, actually, and uh, it didn't all click into place until the recording was actually finished but I went back and I found these little kind of uh, audio recordings that I quite often make when I'm practicing or if I'm writing and I'll just record ideas and you know maybe go back to them um but I I, (laughs) kind of all fell into place and I remembered this little session where I came up with this little line and I played it over and over and it was this thing that's like I really like this, but I'm kind of uncomfortable. I'm sure I've heard it before. <laughs> and I actually just discounted it because uh, I thought, no, I can't use this. I'm pretty sure that's a Kareem Polwart song. <laughs> 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 so I just dumped it and then it just it came back uh, when we were recording and, and I'd kind of forgotten why I dumped it, but that was the reason. And it turns out it, it is. that's great we're going to hear it now thanks guys thank you you lots of luck with the festival yeah here's hoping thanks thanks again
That was the very beautiful Craigie Hill by Kareen Polwart and Dave Milligan from the album Still As You're Sleeping. It's out now and you can buy your copy from hudsonrecords.co.uk. Kareen and Dave will appearing at the Traverse Theatre, Edinburgh, on Thursday, 5th May. Hi, I'm Duncan Chisholm. Um, I'm going to be performing at Tradfest. Very excited about that. I've um, been looking through the programme and uh, the concert you definitely have to go and see is Project Smog. 
I saw them um, last year up in Inverness and they are three incredible musicians and you will not be sorry, so please go and see them. Lovely to hear from Duncan, who will be our guest on next week's podcast and is, of course, opening Edinburgh Tradfest on Friday the 29th of April. Duncan's recommendation, Project Smock are appearing at the Traverse on Saturday the 7th of May. Don't miss them. We have a wee bit of storytelling coming up now from one of the founders of Boa Frost, Pedro Cameron, who explains the inspiration behind one of his best-loved songs. Rosanna is a story song. I wanted to imagine the scene of a man standing next to the man that he loves, asking for the blessing of his partner's mother. There's an old trope in folk songs of the disapproving in-laws, songs like The Silver Dagger or The Drowsy Sleeper, where a man comes to a woman's window and asks her to get her parents' permission for them to wed. I wanted to write a queered version of this trope with Rosanna. And I also wanted to turn on its head the idea of a song with a woman's name, where there's no romantic link with the narrator uh, to the, the woman in the title. I think the character in this song is fearless, he's defiant. He's asking Rosanna to put aside her prejudice and to understand that their same-sex love is pure and no different to anyone else's. He talks about being held to ransom by her beliefs. He's trying to appeal to her sense of reality or sense of decency. He says it's just one day. He is trying to downplay what this marriage would mean. He says, we'll make a promise. That's all that I ask. I am lucky, so lucky, that someone I love would never have to plead with my parents the way that the protagonist in my song does. And I truly hope that I never have to do it for someone that I love. Rosanna, Rosanna, I love your son I'm holding his hand in front of everyone His mother and father and all of his friends I know you'd rather this way And I Say you have nothing 
Just let us be who we are even though It hurts your heart and is I know And I by Man of the Minch, a.k.a. Pedro Cameron, taken from the album The Tide is at the Turning, available from manofthemynch.com. My name's Alice Allen, and I'm delighted to be playing at the Edinburgh Trad Fest with Patsy Reed in May. Um, can't wait to be there and to be amongst such an amazing lineup. So many fantastic things to see, and uh, I would love to recommend Frigg, who are some of my all-time favourite musicians. Amazing to see they're going to be over in Edinburgh. Um, so I hope you can get along to watch that. Thanks to Alice Allen for that recommendation. Alice will be appearing with Patsy Reed at the Traverse on Thursday, 5th May. And her favourite fiddle finish, fiddle finish, <laughs> fiddle fun, fin fun, fan for Leo. Try that again, Douglas. And her favourite Finnish fiddle band, Frigg, 
are with us on Tuesday, 3rd May. Thanks, Jane Ann, for writing that. <laughs> well done. Now we're going to catch up with Phil Alexander, composer and musical director of our special commission, Come All Ye. Phil Alexander is probably best known to our audiences as the piano player and accordionist in Moishe's Bagel. One of the many composers in that band, he is also an academic. He has a PhD in ethnomusicology from SOAS and is currently teaching at the University of Edinburgh's Reed School of Music. Phil's research at the university is on the Scottish Jewish musical life of the early 20th century, so he is the perfect person to lead this year's Edinburgh Tradfest Special Musical Commission. Come All Ye is a brand new piece of music written by Phil to celebrate the mix of cultures present in Scotland today and the stories of migration shared by those musicians who've recently made the country their home. Hi, Phil. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi from me too. Hi, Douglas. I know you've got a busy day, so we'll, uh, we'll yeah, rattle you into know. this. Yep, let's crack on. Um, so it's um, Come All You. Um, migration is something that you're quite interested in generally as a subject just wondering yes. how you um came up with the idea for this uh, this uh, show well, i suppose we got well i'm um, i'm interested in the uh, in the processes of musical tradition and how they change and i'm interested in tradition as not as a static entity but as a fluid and changing and transformative kind of repository of uh, cultural of, of cultural things like music and art and storytelling and jokes and folklore and this kind of thing. Um, and I, I mean, obviously the title of this piece, Come All You, comes from Hamish Henderson, who famously described tradition as a carrying stream. In other words, it's something that is constantly on the move. It's a stream that we might paddle in, we might stand in it, we might swim in it, but the stream is continually moving around us and it's gaining new material, it's being added to, it's dropping things off along its way. So it's continually shifting and changing. And it struck me that Scottish musical tradition, I suppose what you might call native or ethnic Scottish musical tradition, is extremely well represented in Scotland, as it should be, because it's a wonderful, rich and diverse pool of material and extremely well represented actually in lots of places around the world but perhaps not so much represented are the other musical traditions which are active within Scotland but are not originally from Scotland and so that was my initial impetus for this piece was to try and we can't represent everyone obviously but to uh, give some of those voices some room to sort of speak and be heard and also uh, at least some of this idea came from my own research uh, University of Edinburgh, which is, as Jane Ann said, is looking at Jewish musical life in Scotland in the late 19th and early 20th century. And some of the people that I'm researching and some of the musical figures that I'm finding, the composers and the synagogue cantors and the poets and things like this, were often coming from Eastern Europe and so speaking musically or speaking poetically with an Eastern European tone of voice. But then as they arrived in Scotland, they were kind of integrating their newer surroundings and that was affecting their work. So I'm very interested in, once again, in how tradition kind of shifts and changes and is added to depending on who's around. Okay, so who have we got around for uh, the, the show in May? Well, we've got a lovely lineup of people. Let's see, who have we got? Um, we've got a, a fantastic Syrian Kurdish oud player called Adnan Shamdin. Uh, Adnan came as a refugee to Scotland in 2014 and he's, in fact, it was his music and his music playing that got him to Scotland. He was working in uh, uh, refugee camps in northern Iraq. 
um, and through his musical connections, that's what brought him to Scotland. Uh, he's still very active in the refugee community as well as being an amazing musician and a tireless educator. Uh, we have uh, Claire Robertson. Claire is a kalimba player and guitarist of mixed African and Scottish descent. She's worked for many years with the Heart Orchestra. We have uh, the Hungarian fiddle player Yanni Lang, who at least some of the listeners will know, I'm sure. Um, Yanni is a great exponent of both Hungarian and Scottish musical traditions. I think we'll probably be drawing more on his Hungarian heritage for this piece. Um, we have the wonderful Jamaican singer uh, Sabrina Ward, better known as Brina, who is a fiery performer and will bring some of that kind of strength to the vocal department of the piece. We have, uh, who else? We have Hardeep Dirhi, uh, better known as Soji, on tabla. He's an Indian classical musician. Um, and there's a couple more still to be confirmed. We're talking a couple of months now before the piece is actually ready for performance. Um, and then there's me as well. I'll be playing piano and accordion and bringing some of my Jewish musical heritage into that mix. Right. So how, how uh, difficult is it to take all these people and put them all <laughs> together? I mean, to some extent, you've done it with Moishe's Bagel, haven't you? Um, it's 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 kind of where I live. Uh, it's it, it's always a challenge um, to take different voices and try and work out how they can all speak together. But I think I think that's one of the most exciting things you can do as a musician, as a and as a creative person generally. But music is particularly because music happens in real time, you know. So you have all these different kind of uh, these different sounds going on, and to try and bring them together is a great challenge. Uh, it's not all that easy, but we're going to work. It's um, a good proportion of this will be newly composed music, but also probably an equal proportion will be traditional music that these uh, musicians are going to bring to the, the kind of musical mix. So it will be, in a sense, it's a newly commissioned piece, but it's also a chance to uh, shine light on their own musical traditions. This is happening in a year's time. We might have uh, some Ukrainian musicians involved as well. I know, yes. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's... Uh, Obviously, something like this, you know, writing a, a piece of music like this in the comfort of Edinburgh is a very, very long way from that, you know, very kind of uh, awful coal face. But at the same time, anything that kind of speaks to the idea of, of movements of people, whether, whether that's forced movements or, or voluntary movements and gets people thinking about that and recognizing that those movements are very much a, a part of contemporary, you know, Western and Eastern European and, and global cultural life is, is important, I think. So I guess we think that these these people will feed into um, the future of Scottish music in a way. Um, and I'm really interested, because of your research, um, about how you feel the migrates, migrants of the late 20th and early, eight, the late 19th, I should say, and early 20th century have already made their voices heard. How, you know, particularly with the Jewish voices, but obviously you would have Irish and Italian and other Europeans, most likely. How, how Absolutely. Yeah, made their voices heard. Well, I think that that's that's really important. I mean, t talking about the Jewish musicians that I've I've been researching, what I found quite a lot was uh, people bringing a very strong sense of Eastern European Jewish sound to Scotland, um, and that what's important about that is that it changes the the kind of soundscape of of Scotland. It, it can't help but if you bring different sounds into a place, that changes the overall collective sound of the place but at the same time it makes connections and it keeps connections alive so in this case keeping connections alive between east and west and i think that the more kind of people you get in the more heterogeneous and cosmopolitan that sound is and what what's interesting for me about this piece and some of the musicians i've been looking at and things like this is that 
you have a, uh, it's a dialogical process. So you have uh, people coming into a, uh, into a kind of culture and in a sense, learning to speak that musical vernacular, but at the same time, their own music changes the, the sound of the culture that's in there. And I think that that sort of hybridity between the two is a really creative and exciting place. And it just reminds us, constantly reminds us that migration is is an ongoing, has always been an ongoing part of the human story. And, you know, we, we do well to remember that, really. Yeah, I think we're going to hear from, well, we hope to hear from some of the people in the show about their kind of migration stories, if you like. But of course, technically, I was interested when I actually looked into um, migration to Scotland that they that when you look at the official figures, they they talk about um, English migrants to Scotland. They're always the biggest group, and technically, I suppose that that makes you a migrant to Scotland from London, where you grew up. And of course, your family has their own migration story. Can you can you tell us first of all about how you came to Scotland, and then how your family came to England? I suppose. Uh, yeah, in that order. Yeah, sure. Um... Well, I came to Scotland with my partner um, about 20, ooh, where are we now? About 21, 22 years ago. Uh, we had a camper van and Edinburgh and Scotland was actually just going to be one part of a uh, of a nice European jaunt. You know, we had everything packed. We we're all set to go. Uh, but very quickly in Scotland, and maybe this is important to note, actually, very quickly in Scotland, in Edinburgh, I met a bunch of amazing musicians. I kind of hooked up with uh like Salsa Celtica, for example, very quickly and, and met some of the people who would become Moishas Bagel very quickly. And so I kind of got stuck in like really rapidly to the music scene in Scotland. And what struck me about it was that from working as a musician in London, obviously you have an incredible pool of incredible talent, but maybe because of that and because it's so big, everyone is sort of defending their corner like very aggressively. Um, and certainly I found that to be less the case in uh, definitely in Edinburgh. It's equally talented, creative and amazing musicians, but a much more generous sense of kind of flow between musical cultures and a kind of really like a stronger sense of musical democracy, which was really appealing. Uh, so, you know, and, and life sticks to you. So, so we, we stuck <laughs> in Edinburgh um, and haven't looked back. It's wonderful. Our son is, you know, a Scot and goes to school here and things. So that's, that's great. Um, my own family journey is, is uh, combines two bits of Jewish migration. So my dad's family came from, uh, Eastern Europe from Poland uh, sometime in the late 19th century, which is when the largest wave of Jewish migrants moved from east to west. A lot of them ending up in the States, of course, but a fair number went to the UK. Um, and so my on that side, my dad's family, they were, uh, they were tailors and uh, cobblers and things like this, traditional Jewish um, uh, occupations. Um, and then on my mum's side, my mum's Jewish family were here actually longer. They're Sephardi Jews, which are Jews from uh, North Africa and the you know the Levant and Iraq and Portugal and these kind of places, uh, the Mediterranean. And that was my mum's uh, family that probably came at the, more like the beginning of the nineteenth century, and in a sense saw themselves as much more sort of established, uh, anglicised Jews. So those two strains of Jewish migration meet in me, and that's where they ended up. So when are you going to do the rest of your European tour? I mean, Toro Molino still awaits you. <laughs> yeah, we're still there. We're doing it bit by bit. Still, <laughs> soon as COVID allows is when we're going to do it. Although um, we don't have the camp, we don't have the camper van anymore, unfortunately. Right. No, when you were saying about Scotland being a bit, you know, feeling a bit more welcoming, open to 
intruders or whatever. You know, I'm just wondering how, if, if this kind of integration of music that's happened here, if that's a universal thing or if it's partly largely determined by how open and welcoming a nation is. I mean, Scotland has this, probably a, a bit of an exaggerated reputation for welcoming foreigners, but, I mean, we did vote to stay in Europe, you know, and there yeah. were the huge protests in Glasgow to prevent the forced repatriation of, of immigrants by the Home Office and so forth. So I think there is, there is something there, you know. I think there's something there, and you could argue it's a two-way process. There's, I think, uh, you know, a, a welcoming culture inevitably welcomes new cultural forms and, and is more interested in them becoming part of the place. But at the same time, the arrival of new cultural cultural forms can kind of actually force that a little bit to happen, I think. You know, so you because especially something like music, again, which is a very present thing, you know. So if you have different sounds going on, and this actually was the case um, always in, in London, particularly with uh, with Afro-Caribbean musical migrants and, you know, people coming in, is that you have this sound happening on the streets, which you can't help, that that signals a difference of culture. It signals a mix of cultures. And so I think that I, I, I'm a believer that that feeds in, you know, music can matter in that way. It can actually affect the way that people think and the way that people respond to, to difference and to collectivity. You know, I, I believe that's the case. I'm interested that you said that your family were, or your father's family were tailors and cobblers. Um, I wonder how you became a musician. Were you, was there music in the family anyway? <laughs> well, in the very immediate family, my, my aunt uh, uh, is a lovely musician. And so she was my first inspiration. I have been doing a little bit of digging, I must admit, because I'm, because I'm researching other Jewish migrants to the UK. I'm also thinking about my own family's migration story. And I have turned up that uh, one of our family, so our family surname when, when they came over was Alexandrovich and then was, was shortened. So my great grandfather, Lazarus Alexandrovich came over and I found records for him. Now, as part of his clan, I did find there is a, um, a surname, a Zimbalist, mm -hmm. which is um, Yiddish, uh, the Yiddish word symbol is a dulcimer. And so there's a good chance that, and people, you know, like in many cultures that took the names of, of what they did. So there's a good chance that there was a musician somewhere in that mix. How far back or what they did exactly, or whether they were any good, you know, I've... <laughs> I don't know I why the name Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. springs to mind. Was that not Yeah, that's Hollywood? right. Ephraim Zimbalist, Ephraim Zimbalist was, a, was a musician, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. And um, uh, there was, in fact, Zimbalist was so the famous um, Jewish fiddle player Nathan Milstein, um, classical player, his original family name was Zimbalist as well. So I don't know, maybe we're related. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so I believe you've brought with you some uh, music, um, something you wrote previously, I believe. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you've brought. A tune what I wrote. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, this is a, a piece that we still play with Moshe's Bagel. This is something that I wrote when I was on tour with Salsa Celtica um, a number of years ago, and we were in Algeria. And we had this lovely tour. It's kind of slightly weird. Uh, we were ushered through, you know, airport customs and things like this by burly mustachioed men who said things like, you don't need to worry about passports and that kind of thing. And we had this, <laughs> it was very different times. Toby Shippey had lined their, their pockets with money. Exactly. Probably. Yes. He'd had, he'd had a word, uh, but we, it was great. We had a really wonderful time. And uh, one of the places we played was a place called Timgad, um, which is this beautiful site of Roman ruins. And uh, it was, it was, it's in the desert and there was actually, there was a, a sandstorm just before we played. And then there was about, 
three and a half seconds worth of rain, but Algeria doesn't get a great deal of rain. And so all the sound crew panicked, you know, and covered up all the sound desk and everything like this. And this was a Scottish band, you know, is it like, come on, this, this is not rain and it's, the gear's going to be fine. Uh, so actually Toby uh, Shippy led, he thought this is ridiculous because we waited around for ages. And then, so he eventually he said, right, get your instruments. And we, he led us playing acoustically into the crowd and we just, everyone's kind of panicking, lots of police around and things, but it was one of those lovely musical moments. Um, and and the gig was nice, and the place really stayed with me and the whole trip. So I wrote a piece in, in the hotel room, actually, the next day in Algiers. I wrote a piece called Tim Gad, which was kind of trying to sum up some of that. And I, I picked this as well for this conversation because it speaks of somewhere else, but it's come through me. So again, looking at trying to make connections through music. Great, and it's actually one of my favourites. So thanks for bringing That's that. Nice. Thank, Thank you very much, Bill. We Close look forward to the, to the show on the 2nd of May wonderful well thanks for thanks for having me and uh, yeah great look forward to the whole festival thanks have a good day cheers cheers Bye. and you Bye.
That was Tim Gadd from Moish's Bagel from the album Uncle Roland's Flying Machine. Regular audience members will know that the Bagels recently played their last headline gig at the Traverse on 3rd April, but they're still scheduled for one more festival gig at Nokengorach towards the end of May. Their albums can still be purchased direct from MoishesBagel.com. Phil Alexander will be presenting Come All Ye at Edinburgh Tradfest on Monday 2nd May. One of the musicians featured in the specially put-together band for that night is Yanni Lang, and we're going to hear from him now. My name is Janos Lang, or Yanni Lang, as most of the people know me in Scotland. Uh, I'm a Hungarian violinist, uh, moved to Scotland in 2005, and it has been quite a long journey that uh, started pretty much in the mid-90s. As a teenager, I've fallen in love with Scottish and Irish music, um, that I was introduced to in my younger years through up my dad and some friends from Denmark and uh, although I was studying classical music I found that structure and world a bit too rigid and and restricted and uh, started to to explore and seek out uh, Irish and Scottish music traditions which was quite difficult at the time because it was pre-youtube and pre-internet times so I had to sometimes even save up money to travel to neighboring countries like Austria where, where I could purchase some, some sheet music and, and CDs and, and cassettes. Luckily in Budapest I managed to make some friends who introduced me to more and more musicians from the UK. As a result I eventually visited the UK and, and I was even uh, invited to join a, a tour called Fiddles on Fire back in 2000 when uh, I had the opportunity to play together with Chris Stout, Desi Donnelly, Susanna Lundeng and Eliza Carthy. And that definitely propelled me towards uh, coming over to the UK and then spend more and more time because the, the cultural life in the UK at the time compared to Hungary was way more, more vibrant, full of festival sessions. And I was absolutely blown away how, how young traditional musicians approached their music and it was all youthful, all new, all extremely inspiring for me. So it eventually led to the formation of some groups with, with musicians from the UK and, and eventually I decided, especially after 2004 when Hungary joined the European Union, uh, that I am going to settle somewhere here and I've been offered a job in Aberdeenshire as a violin teacher, so I worked there for a good few years for Aberdeenshire Council. During this period I met my wife in, in Aberdeen and we moved to Edinburgh eventually. And that was another chapter that was fantastic and, and, uh, and I submerged into the session scene there and eventually I, I, I found two fantastic young musicians, uh, Jack Badcock and Kieran Ryan, and we started a group called Dalahan. And Dalahan kept me really busy for, for many years, followed, and we, we had a fantastic time touring Europe, America, we even got as far as, as uh, Kathmandu. Dalahan was a fantastic journey. Uh, it took me to places I always wanted to go. Uh, I, it allowed me to, to play with musicians I always wanted to play with and create the music I, I admired since I was young. And uh, I, I, I really, truly enjoyed those years. Towards the end of my 30s, I felt a calling to explore more my own cultural heritage as well. 
that is strongly connected to Roma people and Roma culture, I have always felt that uh, helping, supporting and nurturing Roma culture is very important uh, in terms of empowering the various different Roma communities. Since 2016, this idea grew into an organization called Andoglasso, and ever since I have been the creative director of this organization, and it became my full-time job. Throughout my work with Andoglasso, I do have the opportunity to meet and play with fantastic Roma musicians. And to finish off, I'm going to show you some traditional gypsy music that we recorded with some of our participants. to Yanni Lang for sharing his story. That was a wonderful track called Tornali Satri Siuri by the Yanni Lang Band. And if you want to check out Ando Glasso, the organisation that promotes Roma culture in Scotland, visit andoglasso.org. A link to the website will be in our show notes. So that's all we have time for in this episode. Thanks to all our guests, Kareem Polwer, Dave Milligan, Pedro Cameron, Phil Alexander and Yanni Lang. And also thanks to Alice Allen and Duncan Chisholm for the recommendations. Edinburgh Tradfest takes place this year from Friday 29th April until Monday 9th May. We hope you can join us for some great live music in Edinburgh during that time. If not, there's always a podcast. Our next episode goes live on Friday 22nd April when we'll be joined by guests including Duncan Chisholm, Adnan Shamdin, Alice Allen and Patsy Reid. Thanks for listening. Edinburgh Tradfest podcast is produced and presented by Douglas Robertson and Jane Ann Ferdy with the help of our hugely capable engineer, Dave Kay. The theme tune, Silence of the Trams, is by Angus R. Grant, performed and arranged by Sugal Nifty. Information on all our guests and the music played is listed on our website, edinburghtradfest.com. Huge thanks to our funders, Creative Scotland and... The William Grant Foundation, makers of Glenfiddich and other wonderful things. Please rate, review and subscribe to Edinburgh Tradfest podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently that helps other people find it. Thanks very much. <laughs>